0: Great. So my name is Kamalini Kumar. I'm from India originally, but have been in the United States for 46 years. Um, Have been uh, a nurse educator all my life, all my professional life, which is I was counting up last night 48 years of teaching in nursing, and I just retired last year. Um, My passion in nursing is helping nurses to put their faith into practice, and as a result of that, I got involved with Nurses Christian Fellowship, USA and International. I am currently on the international board, and I have served as president of, of the international board. And so, in that capacity, I've had very humbly the privilege to travel to all six continents except Antarctica. I've never been there, and. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm fighting a cold, and speak um, in probably 19 or 20 different countries uh, to nurses, teaching them spiritual care of patients and how to, um, you know, assess and meet spiritual needs and how to put their faith into practice, and did a lot of work on culture and culture care. And I taught cultural competence in health care for so many years, And I have to tell you, I'm sick of it. I'm bored by the fact that you keep on explaining, this is how this culture looks at life and health, and this is how this culture does it. And really, if you've ever read anything on culture, how do you remember all that stuff? As a teacher, I don't. I have to keep reading it over and over again to remember it. So when I have patients from different cultures, I have to stop and think, now, what did they think about health care and what, do, what is end-of-life issues for them? So to go back to the little book and read it and see what it is. So I decided when they asked me to speak uh, this time on caring across cultures that I was going to do something totally different. So if you're here to learn about different cultures of the world, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but hopefully you learned something <coughs> something much more um, useful for you in practice as you deal with people from different cultures. So these are some of the objectives, and being an educator, I have to put objectives up. So what is culture? Whenever we talk about culture, we, the first thing we think of are all these external things, language and, and uh, you know, what they think about celebrating and jokes and games and things. It's a very external view of culture. How many of you went to school um, demonstrations of culture night or cultural fairs and just, you know, got and they call it, wear your cost- costume. And I always said, who wears costumes? This is your natural dre- national dress, you know, and you eat the food and you just see the folk dances and you think you know everything about that culture based on that one little experience. And that is so superficial, our knowledge is so superficial. And how many of you have heard about the iceberg analogy, where you just know 10%? You, watching me, you will not even know 10% of me, and I won't know 10% of you in in our brief encounter. Who you are and who I am is 90% below the surface, right? And yet we make judgment calls on people, we make our assumptions on people, we make presumptions based on the very short time we spend with them on that 10%. And so really, to get to know people, we need to delve much deeper. This is a very busy slide, but I put it up there to show you. <clears throat> the author, his name is Gary Weaver, and in 1986, <clears throat> he used this image to say that we have a surface culture that is very obvious to everybody, and then we have folk culture, which is part of our nationality. But the deep culture or the deep invisible culture is something that is very difficult to ascertain at our, in our very first encounters. And this deep culture is what we as Christians need to look for because it involves elements such as the definition of sin or the concept of justice or um, what is sometimes even insanity. Some people don't want to claim that there's anything like mental illness or they hide it or they protect it. Um, How do we solve problems? What is our approach to interpersonal relationships? Our egos, all those things are very deep culture and we don't allow people to know that very readily and easily and so we need to understand as we meet and deal with people, there's much deeper levels to look at. And so culture is really, from a healthcare point of view, it's what a person believes or thinks or values regarding how health information is received, how uh, their rights are exercised, um, what is considered to be a health problem because what we in the, in the West might think is a health problem might not be a health problem in another country and vice versa. And how do we express our symptoms and signs? How do we, um, you know, um, display what is wrong with us? Some people are very stoic. Some people are very expressive. And some people uh, sometimes shock us in the way they display um, how they feel about health. And then who should provide the treatment? What type of treatment should be given? These are the things that we need to be aware of. And, and I'm going to, I'm, i rapidly through this because I want to get to uh, what I want to tell you about. <clears throat> but there is, there is definitely a reason to know why this is important, why we need to do this, because we need to be aware and we need to be um, accepting of other cultures. Um, and this is hard to do, especially when that culture bumps up against our own values and skills. Um, when I teach cultural competence, I often ask, what is the Anglo-American culture? If I asked you to explain to me, what is your culture? Anybody shout out. By the way, I'm a teacher who likes lots of active participation. Oh, that's a big cultural value. Freedom. Freedom. Work ethic. Work ethic. Independence. Independence. Self-made. Individualism. Sometimes when I ask this question, everyone goes, what? We are the majority. I mean, we don't have any culture. So people that come from other places that have culture. <laughs> Honestly, that's what people think. And so I've made a list of, of of uh, the Anglo-American culture, and you tell me if I'm wrong. It's also being aware of our own cultural values and recognize that we, we communicate differently, we interpret things differently, we problem-solve differently, and recognize that cultural values and beliefs they impact healthcare, and the whole, the reason we do all this is that we must be willing to negotiate. That's the, that's the verb I want you to think about when you think about cultural care. It's not that you impose, it's not that you do whatever they want you to do, or you want them to do what you want to do, but you negotiate. I'll give you a small example. So the patient comes to the physician for uh, hypertension, very high blood pressure. And uh, the physician, in the course of history taking, finds out that the guy drinks a glass of salt water every day. So so what's the reaction? What's your reaction when you hear that? Oh, my goodness, don't do that. That's killing you. As soon as you say that, what's going to be the reaction of the patient? Or shut down. down. I'm not telling you anything more because you are devaluing what I'm doing. My grandmother taught me from the time I was a little boy that a glass of salt water was very good for my health. So how would we as Western practitioners deal with this? We could say, stop doing this, this is ruining you, and you think they're gonna stop? They're gonna nod their head and smile and say yes and go home, do exactly what they wanna do. You haven't changed anything. What can you do? Negotiate. What do you? Good, good, mm-hmm. good, answer. What do you do? How do you negotiate? Why? Um, because my grandmother told me. Change into see-saw. <laughs> 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 what is that? i would never seen the sea yet. Well, this is a person who believes that you know that's not. Grandmother taught me the salt from my container at home is what I need to do. Give alternatives, such as. I'm not a nurse, I'm a psychologist. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> this is this is general knowledge, people. Yeah. Okay, the first common, que- good idea. The first common question to say is, how much salt do you put in your water? If the guy is putting three teaspoons of salt, then you can start, say, do me a favor, start with two, put two teaspoons in, and then, you know, try that for a couple of weeks, and then maybe put it one teaspoon And You negotiate with them. They, he might be more compliant. But if he's putting a half a teaspoon or a pinch of salt, hey, you put more, more on your french fries before you even start the first one, don't we? Don't bother with it, that's fine, keep doing it. Grandmother was right. (laughs) And then you, you know, I'm just trying to tell you a simple example of how you deal instead of getting all uptight that they're not practicing the way we think they should be practicing. Find out the right questions are very important to know. So here are some demographics. 47 million Americans do not speak English. And 63% of U.S. hospitals report that a large number of their patients do not speak English. Um, Any of you have dealt with patients who don't speak English? It's frustrating, isn't it? It's difficult. Um, The number of uh, people in poverty have risen. That's the last stats we have since 2012. 38 million Americans are deaf and hard of hearing, and that is a culture all by itself, you know, the, the disability. And then, of course, the uh, minority group with disabilities. So these statistics are especially true in large urban areas where many immigrants live. But this is more true now even in smaller towns and rural areas. It pre- presents a great challenge for healthcare workers who often only speak English. And then there's a lot of disparities in healthcare. Uh, when there are racial and ethnic uh, differences and when, when there are uh, patients between healthcare providers and patients, disparities often exist. Patients don't feel safe with people they are unable to understand. And so um, they can be non-compliant or they, can, you know, they cannot do uh, what you tell them. Maybe they have decreased access to care. And there is a kind of um, silence that happens when they feel separate from you. And so natural um, uh, disparities occur. Um, medical ethnocentrism, I, I really want to push through this. It's just the belief that I know best what's right for you. And that, that creates a lot of problems. Uh, By the way, if anyone wants my slides, just give me your little sticker things and I'll email it to you so you don't have to write all these notes. And and so it's important for us to understand the consumer's frame of reference. Um, You said we were individualistic. Many cultures are collectivistic. So when the whole family is making the decision and you go, wait a minute, I'm only taking care of the patient, But they say no, but grandmother's the decision maker or my husband's the decision maker. And so we need to stop and take a step back and find out who is the decision maker in this family. And as much as it goes against our grain, that's the person we have to talk to and try to convince. Uh, The gender of the provider becomes very important In, in most countries of the world. The, the gynecologists, obstetricians, pediatricians, and internal medicine are women because they deal with women. And many women will not go to male um, you know, physicians. And I have a dear friend, a Christian friend, who is um, a urologist, and she's a lady. And she says, I love to tell the men, drop your pants, because they tell that to us all the time. And it's difficult for men to go to her. You know, the, this gender issue is a big thing. Uh, there's a lot of expectation not only of the provider's role, but, but what, what can we expect from them? What, what should they be able to do for us? And then sharing their personal history. They will not share. Some cultures won't share that they have mental illness or um, they had a miscarriage or things like that that they feel is private. And shameful, they won't share it a lot of lot of attitudes about what what really constitutes suffering and what is pain and how do you display pain and so the, if you try to understand the consumer's frame of reference you might do better but you're you're saying to me Camellini be realistic our our association with the patient is barely 5 minutes or 10 minutes how can we find out all this and that's what I, when I teach in culture care is my frustration. When so much information we're supposed to gather in order to be, to give the right kind of care. <clears throat> so before I go into my, my take on this, I just, I, I these are I, what I think are dominant Anglo-American uh, cultures. Individualism, uh, individualism and self-reliance, would you agree? Independence and freedom, we talked about that. Competition and achievement, big cultural value, dependence on, on materialism, dependence on technology, equal gender roles and rights are huge cultural um, ask, but it's not often given. You know, there. instant time, instant action. There's instant everything, from instant coffee to instant funeral parlors. Have you heard of that? drive-by funeral parlors because they're too busy to get out and go do the visitation, so they have this big glass window and the body is there, and you can drive up and pay your respects and drive off. They've made everything so convenient uh, because instant time and action is valued highly. Youth and beauty. Now we're seeing commercials for dentures and laxatives and Coloring your hair and all that stuff. Previously, it was all about youth and beauty, right? Our reliance on scientific facts and numbers is far more value than anything else if you're looking for medical care or anything. And then, of course, there's the generosity and helpfulness. And crises is a, a definitely a Western um, value. You can add a lot more to this. This is just my take on it. So. Having said all that, I'm going to change the paradigm, and I just want to talk a little bit about what is Christ-like caring across cultures. And I want to approach it from um, the view of culture, meaning God's culture, biblical culture. And then I want to talk about the conduct of a person who really cares like Christ, and then I want to talk about how you communicate therapeutically when you show Christ-like caring and then actually the acts of caring, what they are. So this is my paradigm for how you care across cultures. And I, I, was, I looked long and hard, and I wanted to select some. I wish I was a theorist. I wish I could write like people write. But, you know, we heard this morning that none of us have any, we're not original creators. We, we just connect things from, from our experiences and from our knowledge and we come up with something that we think is new, but there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible tells me that. And so um, I started looking in God's word for what does his culture look like, the way he treats people. And then Kristen Swanson, how many of you know that she's a nurse theorist? Um, Wonderful, when when our hospital was looking for a nurse theorist to be part of our platform for nursing care, we chose her because she talks about relationship-based care, and this is what we wanted to emulate. And I'll go into that in a little detail of how we behave. And then communication, Trout and Coloratus. Trout is a a, um, clinical psychologist, and his wife, uh, Mary Coloratus, is a nurse. And between the two of them, they came up with this wonderful model of therapeutic communication, which I think follows the model of Christ. And finally, Raman is a physician uh, in California, and she came up with a theory of human caring. So I picked these, these four people because I think they emulate what we as Christians would like to um, um, emulator's culture, and so I wanna first talk about God's culture in relationship. And there are very sound theological reasons for which we uh, should commit ourselves to understand other people's cultures and to celebrate, wherever possible, our diversity. So God expresses his creativity in diversity. So that tells me that God values diversity. Right? And so should we. If God wanted us all to be alike, he would have created us all alike. But he didn't. He created us differently. He created us the way he did. And, so, and he loves that and he values that. So we as Christians have to see, and you know, our idea of beauty may not be the same as another culture's idea of beauty, but we have to value the fact that in his sight, we are created in his image, therefore, we have intrinsic worth and value. And we hear this all the time. And we say it with our mouth. Everyone has, is, you know, regardless of their culture and ethnicity, they have intrinsic value. We say that, but I wonder if we really believe that, and I wonder if we really follow that when it comes to treating other people. Thirdly, Christ died for all people of the world. Therefore, he is proclaimed as the only way to God. And this is something that there's a great deal of pushback when we say Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. It is the most exclusive of all statements. And yet it is the most inclusive of all things because he died for the whole world right and it's not a western religion like many many people think it is and so we need to understand that God's way is the only way Christ's way dying is the only way to God God loves all people unconditionally and therefore we need to love people the way Christ loves us and I don't know about you but loving someone unconditionally requires a great deal of willpower, sacrifice, and, and definitely the work of the Holy Spirit. Because that is a kind of love <clears throat> that is impossible for us to do on our own. And this is something I think we can take to the bank. Truth is not relative to culture, but absolute truth is based on God's word Therefore, our cultural practices should always be evaluated in the light of God's word. When I speak in other countries to nurses from other cultures, you often hear of things they do as part of their cultural practices. And if it's harmless and if if it's not going against scripture, you just let them do it. But if it's something that violates God's commandments, are you getting what I'm saying? If they want to sacrifice, um, I don't know, an animal in order to get God's um, attention. Is that okay? Yeah. No, but is it okay to say, I need to sacrifice this animal so God can forgive me? But that's what their culture says they should do. So should we say, well, that your culture says you can do that, so go ahead and do it. Is that okay? Come on, guys, tell me, is that okay? Think about it. They are sacrificing an animal for forgiveness of sins. Pardon? No, so these are Christians, they are believers, okay? We're not talking about non christian we're talking about Christian believers who are followers of Jesus Christ that are torn between following things in their own culture that has been done for generations. What do you tell them? I say, go to God's word. And if God's word says That's not, it cannot be done, it doesn't matter what your culture says. You are now in a new kingdom. You're not in the kingdom of the world anymore. You're in the kingdom of God. And so you follow what the kingdom of God teaches you. God's culture trumps yours. And so any practice that goes against God's culture, you can, you can just say it, say it boldly. And tell them they cannot do that if they're followers follower of Jesus Christ. If they're not followers of Jesus Christ, we can't tell them what to do or not do. God is a gentleman. He does not intrude in our lives. We have to say, we have to do, serve him out of our own free will. And so we have to know God's word, what it says. And so I challenge people from cultures where they're trying to practice Things that their culture teaches them, go to God's word, find out, and if it violates God's word, you cannot do it. Because as a body of believers, we all believe the same thing. Are you getting what I'm saying with this, this culture of practice? And unity amongst God's people is a testimony and a witness for his kingdom, and therefore, we should strive for unity in spite of diversity. Not uniformity, unity. And unity has nothing to do with the way we dress, the way we sing, the food we eat, or we cannot do all that. The missionaries that came to India told us that we need to change and wear Western clothes and not wear saris because it exposed your midriff and that was very sexy and we couldn't do that. And I'm glad the Indian woman said, go climb a tree, we're not doing that. We are going to keep our national dress. I mean, there are sometimes unity and uniformity are two different things we need to understand that it's unity of the spirit and unity of the heart that God wants from us and there is nothing more beautiful in the world than to be at an international conference and hear people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue sing how great thou art each in their own language and all ending on the same note I mean that is Yeah. I don't know. Hair on the back of your neck. It's it's a wonderful experience. So unity in spite of our diversity. And God has committed to his people the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we should seek his help in, in reconciling to each other when our differences become divisive. Whenever there's a divisive situation, our first thought is, How can I submit? this not how can I get my way in this but Lord what do you want me to do? What do I submit to the other person so that we can get on the same page? And that calls for a great deal of humility and a great deal of the whole the life of I mean the work of the Holy Spirit. God is calling people from every tribe, language, and nation to be part of his universal church. And therefore, we are called to live in harmony and community with one another. I think we'll be surprised when we get to heaven to find people there that we thought would never be there. Oh, my gosh, you're a Buddhist. How did you land up here? We don't know. We don't know what God is doing in the world. And we don't know. I have many Hindu friends that are Christians but don't say that aloud because they will be, you know, ostracized, no jobs, they won't get loans and all that. So they have their puja rooms or their worship rooms where they have the pictures of all their gods and they also have Jesus in, in that in that mix because they do believe Jesus is an avatar. He's a God that came down. And they'll stand in their rooms, their worship rooms, and they'll bow their heads and they look only at Jesus when they pray. And God knows their hearts. And we might be surprised to see them in heaven, but we just need to understand, God is far wiser than us and knows who his people are. So we need to start judging who is and who isn't a Christian. And then God cares deeply about the widow, the orphan, and the alien, people from other cultures. And therefore, we need to be obedient in caring for such groups. So this is just my brief study on God's culture and why it trumps all other cultures. And once we get a hold of I'm using Trump, okay. (laughs) Our next president, I'm very, very aware of that. All right. Yes, any comments about that? Okay, I'll go on quickly. I love this quote. Um, It is entirely possible to spend our days engaged in activities that work well for us and achieve our objectives and still wonder whether we're really making a difference in the world. My premise, and this is Peter Block, my premise is that this culture and we as members of it have yielded too easily to what is doable and practical. In the process, we have sacrificed the pursuit of what is in our hearts. We might put aside our wish for safety instead, view our life and our practice as purpose-filled, whose intention is more for learning than for achieving, and more for relationships than for power, speed, and efficiency. And that's what I want to focus on, is if you learn how to connect and establish a relationship with someone, then you can care for them regardless of what their culture is and where they're from. And so here is our conduct in relationship and using Kristen Swanson's theory, uh, which I absolutely, as I read through some of the nursing theories are so esoteric, you don't even know what they're talking about. But this particular one resonated with me because I thought that I can see this is the way that Jesus might have cared for his people. So the first thing she says to show that we truly care is to maintain belief. And this, this maintaining a belief is uh, maintaining a fundamental belief that people can make it through whatever they are suffering through or whatever they're going through and eventually find some meaning or purpose in what they're going through um, in their experience. On, on, on our part, the part of the provider, whether we are physicians, nurses, whatever we are, it means we need to have a faith and we need to have a hope-filled attitude for the patient and be willing to go the extra mile to maintain belief for them. Do you get what this is talking about? It's, a hard, it's walking a fine line between maintaining belief and being truthful. Sometimes you might have to speak the truth and, and hope gets robbed totally. But how do you do that? Only by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. Maintain belief for them. Knowing is not head knowledge. Knowing is much more. Knowing knowing is striving to know the lived realities of that person rather than having any preconceived ideas or assumptions about them. You have to thoroughly assess and and seek cues from the patient and, and learn from the patient what they are trying to teach you about themselves, not what you think you know about them. So it's a different kind of knowing. And third is the being with. Being with is not only just being in the room, but being emotionally present to the patient to listen, sometimes listen with endurance, because sometimes you want to just zip them because you're too busy, but listen, because when you do that and take the time to do that, you will get below and start to look at the invisible culture that has been hidden from you. And this, no, this um, being with says, I want to attend very carefully to not only what is being said, but what is not being said. That is so much more important. Doing for is, this, and this is interesting, she says, doing for the patient what they cannot do for themselves if it was possible. You know, in healthcare, sometimes we tend, like, have you ever taught a two-year-old to tie their shoelaces? Of course, now they have Velcro, so you don't have to do that. But have you ever taught a kid to tie shoelaces? And and you know they're not doing it right, and you're in a hurry to go, and, and you say, come on, let me fix it. And they go, no, me do it, me do it. and And you just want to grab them and do it yourself because it saves time. You know, and and fulfills your agenda. How many times we do for patients what they could do for themselves, and then when they go home, there's nobody to do it for them, and we haven't done them a favor at all. And doing for when they cannot do for themselves is a good thing, but doing for when they can do for themselves is not a good thing. It doesn't show caring. It just shows impatience on our part to get things done. And so that's something we need to be very mindful of. We need to protect them. We need to protect their dignity and, and be comforting and let them do what they can do. And then enabling and informing, um, facilitating the patient's journey through the healthcare system through familiar events and unfamiliar events that, uh, that involves that we inform them in a language they can understand. We inform them using words that they can understand. When we start talking medicalese to them, uh, because it's quicker for us, uh, it's very difficult for them to really understand and validate what they need to know. And so these five behaviors or conducts, if we practice them, and I, I wish I had time to go through how Jesus did this in so many situations. How he was a presence and how he did for people what they couldn't do for themselves. And how he enabled them and informed them and cared for them. So this is a very good way of conduct, for conduct uh, with, for caring. And then we go to how we actually communicate. And therapeutic communications, you know the word therapeutic really means to serve or to attend to. And so, three questions uh, to ask yourself. What does the relationship, my relationship with my patient look like? Are there some patients I relate to better than others? Why is this so? Who are the patients you like? The ones of you who take care of patients. The ones who are receptive. Receptive and do what you tell them to do and are compliant and are grateful I mean don't we love them all Mm -hmm. but then are all of them like that and yet can we have a relationship with someone who does not do what we want them to do Okay. and then how much time does it take to make a human connection how much time long time What is a human connection? Let's say that first. Hmm? Every time I talk about this, doctors and nurses tell me this is unrealistic. We don't have time to do all this. And I say that's baloney. It depends upon what you want to do and what you want, how you want to connect. A smile can connect instantly. A touch connect instantly. The tone of voice with which you use with the patient can connect instantly. The thing that you say that comes out of your mouth, you don't need time to make a human connection. Relationships might take a little longer, but relationships don't happen unless connections are made. Right? And so ask yourself, how do you make human connections? How do you do that? So the value of therapeutic relationships is, um, you know, um, it helps people to cope with their circumstances, it helps them to be resilient and optimistic, and it helps them to take accountability for their own practice. Um, To be attuned, that's the start to, it means we have to listen and hear for the moment, give our undivided attention to the person that we're dealing with. In other words, can we see them from our hearts? I tell tell nurses, whenever you walk into a patient's room, before you enter the door, put your hand on the doorknob and say, I'm leaving everything outside. I'm just gonna go in and give undivided attention for the time I'm in the room. Because I have seen nurses rushing in, looking at their watches and saying, I'm sorry, I was busy. It's a zoo out there. What are you implying? You're taking care of a bunch of animals out there, (laughs) that it's a zoo? I, I mean, sometimes we convey the idea. And you know what? Patients say, I'm so sorry I disturbed you. I know you are busy. And patients apologize to us for calling them. That should never happen. You know, we need to walk in there and give them our full undivided attention. And so the value of true, um, I wanna go back to one more slide here. The value of true uh, therapeutic relationships is not about being nice. It's not about having a prescribed action or way of communication. It's not built uh, on our personalities or how good we are in communicating. And it is a, it's, it's, it's knowledge based, but it's also grounded in, in the way we care, the way we express our care. And, you know, we can't assume that everyone has a caring gene that's embedded inside of them. And all we have to do is work to pull out that caring gene and people will be fine. No, it's not the case. But by the same token, we should not give a pass to people who think that building relationships is too tough. I'm not going to do it because I don't have time. I'm a professional. I don't have time to do this. We as Christians should not do that to anyone, neither should we allow other Christians hold each other accountable for how we treat people. That's what we need to think about. You know, it's, uh, some of us have a giftedness for caring, but the others of us can at least be Christ-like in the way we care. And so, <clears throat> Coloratus and Trout have um, have three wonderful practices um, that they suggest for therapeutic communication. And it's, their theory is uh, is really um, one that each of these actions uh, describe how you interact with patients, but they're also a way of thinking and a mindset of being. And what what uh, they start off with is wondering. Wondering when you walk into a room, you leave all your assumptions behind, and you come in with curiosity and acceptance and a joyful not knowing. I, how many of you were at the plenary this morning um, in the chapel? Did she remember her saying, "Pretend you don't know the end of the story." in in Matthew um, 11 right wasn't that Matthew 11 about Lazarus pretend you don't know that he raised him did you do that and did you did you see her point of view as you went through as she read the passage it sounded and felt different didn't it because you were wondering what was going to happen why did God act this way why did Jesus act this way and sometimes when we suspend all our assumptions and presumptions and we walk into the room not knowing anything, okay, here is a patient. This is a patient, say, um, I'll just say a Hindu from India who's lying there. I often dress and I wear a sari when I teach cultural competence. And the first question I'd ask, well, where do you think I'm from? And so most people are, India. Well, what did you think when you saw me? And nobody says anything. And then they say, Well, your dress is beautiful. Thank you. All right. What else did you think? Um, You're a Hindu. Okay. You probably don't eat meat. Okay. And they carry on with the presumptions that they, you know, they have in their mind. And so I correct all the assumptions that they have made about me. And then I say, there's one sport I really enjoy doing. I'm pretty good at it and um, what do you think it is and they all start guessing and they say tennis and golf and and then I say no no and then they're stuck they don't know what sport I do because I'm wearing a sari see so when I tell them I'm a pretty darn good downhill skier they all gasp (laughs) Because they imagine me flying down the slopes in a sari. I guess I don't know. (laughs) The assumptions that people make is just based on that. But if you come in with wondering, wide open eyes. I don't know anything about you. I want to learn. I'm emptying my mind, and I'm listening and I'm watching with curiosity. I'm suspending my judgment and I'm noticing you in a different way and I'm purposefully eliminating all the barriers because I want to learn about you. You're you're somebody new to me. And so when we do that, when we wonder that that way, we um, we start to view people from a different perspective and we see everything given to us as novel and new and we are aware of the context in which we are perceiving information and we create new ways of understanding. If you If you hear Jesus' questions to people, he knew everything about them. But he always asked them questions about themselves like it was new information for him. So the least we can do is follow that model and try to find out. And here are some wondering questions. Please tell me what you meant by so and so. Is there something else I need to know about this? What is important to you? I'm not sure I I know what that word means. Could you explain this to me? I noticed that blah, blah, blah. Does that seem accurate to you? What if anything bothers you or worries you right now? when you ask these kinds of questions, would you get information that you would never get if you just asked the routine questions on the assessment sheet? What do you think? Even when you meet a person for the first time, if you ask these kinds of questions, you will get to know them at a much deeper level than you do ordinarily. So um, the value of wondering then is, um, no, let me tell you what wondering is and what it's not. Wondering is noticing and inquiring. It is not interrogating and acquiring data. So many times uh, when we go in, all we want to do is find out information. You know, the electronic health record is a wonderful tool, but sometimes we don't use it as a tool, we use it as a driver of our practice. And we walk in there, and we're on the computer, and we, as patients, start to think we're not paying attention to them. And older nurses don't like it at all because, first and foremost, they have ten thumbs instead of two thumbs, and, and they're not fast typists and whatever. But they also use the excuse that we are nursing the computer, not the patient. But, you know, there are ways to avoid that. We, if we walk into the room, everyone knows that, you know, everything's done on the computer nowadays, everywhere you go. So just say to them, I am listening to you. I'm trying to and maintain eye contact as much as you can. And if, if, if uh, feasible, show them the computer. Show them what you're doing and say, I'm typing this to get your story as accurately as I can on the computer so I don't forget anything you've told me. And then you are the center of attention. What I'm doing on this computer is all about you. And if you just start with that introduction, people won't feel like you're you're taking care of the computer, not them. You know? So don't make it an interrogation or data collection. Make it something that is, I'm noticing you and I'm inquiring about you. I want to get the right information. It's accepting them and not judging. You know... um, Sometimes uh, we need to scan our hearts for biases and prejudices before we enter a room, so we're noticing that person without judging. Whatever, however dirty they are, however non-compliant, however, however belligerent, there's always a reason why people are the way they are. Uh, wondering is discovering and not assuming. You know, a mother brought her little infant boy to the ER uh, for a ear infection around midday, and she also, uh, so she brought the kid to the ER, and they treated the little boy, but the nurse noticed that she also had her two young daughters with her, and they were still in their pajamas, so she asked them, have you had breakfast, and they said no, so she went out and got two bowls of cereal for the little girls, and then she wondered why they were accompanying the mother to the ER. So instead of judging the mother for not dressing up her kids and bringing them to the ER in the middle of the day, she just said, um, I wonder why they're still in their pajamas. And she said, the mother said, well, that's why I brought them here. And the nurse thought, wow, I thought you came in here for your little boy with the urine And she said, no, my father has been sexually abusing my two little girls, and I had to find a way to get them out of the house. Mm -hmm. And so I just brought them with my little boy so that they wouldn't be alone at home. Now, how would you know that if you just judged her for being a sloppy mother and bringing two little girls with their pajamas in at midday? And just sent her home without asking any of the wondering questions. I'm just saying, you know, we can get a lot more information if we keep our eyes wide open. Uh, not staying open and not rushing to conclusions. And then wondering is remembering that everyone has another story to tell. I have stories to illustrate all this, but I'm looking at the clock. I talk too much. Anyway, so everyone has another story to tell. There was a woman that brought, was brought into the ICU, deathly ill. All her body systems were shutting down. She was a drug addict. She was in a lot of pain. She was miserable. Uh, she wasn't expected to live, but she wanted every available thing that could be done for her to be done. She did not want to die, and she was dying rapidly. And finally, the pastor came to see her, and he said, I wonder what you are scared of, is what he said. And she revealed to him that she had been a prostitute all her life, and that she was afraid. She knew that if she died, she was going to hell, and she did not want to die. So she said, do everything to keep me alive. I do not want to die, because I will go to hell. And he had the privilege of sharing the gospel with her and said, there is nothing you can do that will take God's love from you. And shared the gospel and led her to Christ. And then she let them let her die. So when you, when you remember that everyone has another story to tell, it's so important. And wondering as caregivers, you know, we coming on. Oh, all right. Who can help me? Cable, cable come Press the source on your remote. I don't know much more that. PC, Technology is great when it works. All right. Are you okay with me just talking? Because this is going to take a while. So the next thing we talk about is holding. Um, No, excuse me. Following. Following is a series of intentional acts that we do that, uh, you know, demonstrates that I want to be led and taught by you. I, I want to show respect for you by acknowledging about who you say you are and where you want to go. And so you consciously be, decide to follow the patient and where they're going. And we give careful attention to their body language, to the way they the touch, the tone of voice. We notice uh, what we're learning from them. If, if the patient has come in with a stress ulcer, And you want to talk about her stress ulcer, but she wants to talk about her mother-in-law, and you're thinking, oh, you're wasting my time. But if we just stopped and listened, maybe the mother-in-law was the cause of the stress ulcer. And then we need to go there where the patient is going. Follow the patient where they're going. It's conscious listening, responsive touch, and responding to nonverbal cues. And if we follow the patient, regardless of what culture they come from, we learn a lot. We learn about their superstitions. We learn about their beliefs. We learn about their values. We learn about their assumptions when we are following them. And, you know, let me tell you, it does not take much time to do that because I have done it and I've seen other people doing it. And you get the pertinent information for what they want you to know about their disease. But if you have your prescribed set of questions and that's all you're sticking to, you will not get to know really what the patient is trying to tell you about themselves. You won't get to know about their culture or what they want you to believe believe about it. Following is not fixing the problem. That's not what following is. It's not advising them. You know, someone told me long ago, unasked for advice is often criticism. Perceived as criticism. If, you, if I tell you, um, you know, your name is Dan, Dan, that green shirt doesn't match at all. I mean, it doesn't look good on you. That's not a color you should wear. How would you feel? Like, who does she think she is? I mean, why is she telling me this? But if you asked me, Camellini, what do you think of this color on me? And I tell you, Dan, that doesn't, do you any justice. Maybe pink would be better. (laughs) I mean, you know, then you take my advice without any problem. But if I, you don't ask and I give it to you, you perceive it as criticism. And so sometimes we give people advice without listening to what they really want from us. We're not following them. Um, Following is not educating, because when we're educating, it becomes an obstacle to listening to what they're trying to tell us. Following is not telling your own story. And sometimes when, when the patient starts telling you their story, you start saying, well, you know, I have that same problem too, especially pregnant women. if you, There's a poor pregnant woman there. She hears everybody's labor stories. Um, distancing or shutting down from them is not following. And not, not even excessive responding like, wow, oh, my gosh, that's, that's awful. That's not the way you follow. You just listen take it in, and then take cues from what the patient wants you to do. So as you do that, as you follow them, then you can take the appropriate action. You can be, um, you can challenge them, you can mentor them, you can support them, you can guide them, you can do all those things. And the third therapeutic communication is called holding. Holding is an act of devotion. Holding is a conscious de- uh, determination to... Put your arms either physically or psychologically around them and f- make them feel safe. F- make them feel that I will keep your confidence, I value you when I write in the chart, I will not write f- um, obese, female, whatever, you know, the stuff we write. Um, that that I will speak and write about you with dignity and that um, I will really seek to make it safe for you to confide, and make it safe for you to trust me. And I just want to read you a beautiful uh, statement written by a physician patient after she had a massive, debilitating left hemispheric stroke. After she recovered, she said this about her doctor. He was a kind and gentle doctor. He was genuinely sympathetic to my situation, and he took the time to pause during his busy routine while he was making rounds, and leaned down near my face and speak softly to me. He touched my arm often to reassure me that I would be okay. Although I could not understand his words, it was clear to me that this doctor was watching over me. He understood that I was not stupid, just impaired. He treated me with the greatest respect, and I felt so safe with him. I will always be grateful for his kindness. How much time did that take? And look at the impact it left on this person. Leaning down, speaking gently, touching softly, and speaking with kindness, even though she did not understand him. That's what holding means. And it's being a steady, non-judgmental presence for the patient um, to understand that you care about them. And then I... I want you to ponder over how do these acts of wondering, following, and holding relate to being a follower of Jesus Christ in our chosen profession and to give culturally appropriate care to the patient. Would you not know that patient at a whole different level if you were giving that kind of care? And the final acts of caring is um, by... uh, A physician named Rachel Naomi Riemann. Anybody heard about Riemann? She's a clinical professor at at UCSF, and um, she was recognized as one of the earliest pioneers in the medical profession um, to bringing in human caring and healing to the medical profession. And she had Crohn's disease for many years, and she credits um, her knowledge about the way she was treated. Her perspective calls for loving connections. She points out that when we accept another person and we affirm their pain and suffering, it can have a profound effect on their ability to cope. And she says we have three motivations when we try to care for people. We want to help them, we want to fix them, or we want to serve them. And she says that when you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. And when you serve, you see life as whole. And she says when we serve, we know that we are connected. All suffering, your suffering is like my suffering. Your pain is like my pain. Your grief is like my grief. When we serve, but when we when we um, um, when we want to help somebody, we often see them as weaker than we are, needier than we are, and people often feel this inequality. The danger is that we take away from people more than we give them. Now, don't get me wrong; helping and fixing are not wrong things to do, but If our goal is helping and fixing and we leave out the serving part, then we really haven't cared like Jesus cared. And this idea of serving is that when we, when we serve, we, we, um, we understand their wounds because we know our wounds. We understand their limitations because we know our limitations. And, and our woundedness is sometimes a key to being empathetic to somebody else. And, and, um, Raman makes this quote, which I want to read to you. Many of us know, don't know that love matters. We are a technological culture, so we're, we think we're supposed to do something to fix people's problems. Or we think there's a right thing to say and a right thing to do. We want to be comforting, but we don't quite know how to do that. What I have discovered is that a simple human connection is all that matters. Nobody expects you to fix their lymphoma or their breast cancer. But people expect that their suffering really matters to you. And all that's needed to say is, I heard about your illness, and I'm deeply sorry. Say it and mean it. Because there's nothing more powerful. Some some of us feel that being real isn't enough. We think we're supposed to be experts and have all the right words and the right answers. The truth is, we are the right answer. And I want to end if you would give me three minutes more with my own uh, personal um, example Sunday November 6 was the first death anniversary of my husband who died last year um, as a result to toxicity to a drug that he was given he was a uh, thoracic vascular surgeon and He was one of, he was a godly man, and and I admired the way he made connections with patients. And one of the last things I remember him doing, um, the patient was brought into our ER from uh, an Eastern European country, Croatia or somewhere, she was living alone, and her neighbor heard her screaming in pain. And so the neighbor brought her to the ER, but she she came in on the stretcher, her knees up to her chest, screaming in pain, but she would not allow anybody to touch her or examine her. The docs couldn't do anything with her. The x-ray technician came and tried to take an x-ray, and she pushed him away. And she said, no, my daughter's coming. My, my daughter lives in Chicago. She's coming now. And she just kept saying, no, her English wasn't good at all. She would not let anybody touch her. And finally, they called my husband, who was on call. And he came in, and I've often seen him do this. He came in, and he pulled the chair up to the patient, and he turned it around. And, you know, whoa, oh, I can't move. I'm tethered. He turned the chair around, and he sat, you know, astride the chair, and put his hand on the top of the back of the chair. You get the picture. And so now he's on eye level with the patient. I've often walked through the hospital and seen him sitting like that. He never stood in a room. He always sat with the patient. And the nurse was with him, and I heard the story both from him and the nurse. And and my husband said to the lady, Hi, Mrs. So-and-so, my name is Dr. Kumar, and I'm from India. And uh, I I have lived a long time in this country, and I have a wife and two children. Um, How many kids do you have, and where are you from? And through her pain, she said, wherever she's from, and she said, I have a daughter in Chicago. And he said, "Um, you speak English very well. And he said, she smiled because she didn't speak English at all very well. And she said, no, 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 no English. And he said, you know, if I was in your country and I got sick and had to go to the hospital, I wouldn't know what to tell them. I wouldn't know a single word in your language. But I understand you. You're doing very well. And she just brightened just at the thought that he acknowledged that he could understand her. And then he said, I want to help you, but I can't do anything for you unless I examine you. But I'm not going to touch you till your daughter comes. When she comes, you let me know. And he went out, and an hour later the daughter came, talked to her mother, and when the mother came out, the daughter came out and said to my husband, "My my mother said, if anyone has to examine her, it must be you, and if she needs surgery, you must do it." So the, my husband said, "Why didn't she let the other doctors look at her, and why didn't she let them do it?" She said. My mother was a prisoner of war in a concentration camp. And she was raped and sodomized and beaten by men. And she escaped from that camp. And she swore that no man would ever touch her again. Now how would you know that about anybody? Unless, unless you did that wandering and that open and that holding and providing a safe atmosphere for her to tell her story. There's always a backstory. And you know how much time that encounter took? Less than five minutes. And here was a person from another culture with with a horrific story that would have never come out had not the right approach been taken. And so I just want to encourage you, when you think about caring, think about your conduct. Think about the way you communicate. Think about your behaviors. And think about God's culture above all. And you will care the way Christ wants you to care. Thank you. Thank you for staying an extra five minutes. And sorry about that. Sorry about the owl I must have done something.